If it is true that environment can create religious experience, then the deserts of the Middle East were absolutely crucial to the spiritual formation of Judaism and Christianity. So I've chosen two scripture lessons for our service of worship. One is from the 35th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, and the second is from the gospel according to Mark. And each talks about the special significance of the desert or deserted places to the spiritual well-being, first of all, of the people of Israel and then of Jesus and his disciples. In the first reading, which is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, there's this vision of the desert suddenly blossoming and full of water, which might not line up with our understanding of what the desert can look like, but there are such things across the world as lush deserts. There are oases in the desert, and there are, of course, beautiful times of the year when desert flowers blossom. So first of all, a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and shouting. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And this reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 to 32. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place, all by yourselves, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place. By themselves. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Some months ago, I was thinking about what to do during the month of February, part one of this year's sabbatical that I'm taking. Because, of course, you can't just rest on a sabbatical, for heaven's sakes. You've got to be thinking about what you're going to do. You have to be doing something. Well, my initial plan was actually to do as little as possible and to stay at home and to rest and read and relax. That sounded pretty good. And luckily, Susan brought me to my senses. She encouraged me to visit the American Southwest. It's a part of the country that means a great deal to her. She lived for many years in the state of New Mexico. It's a part of the country that I had never been to. And something about her suggestion really struck a chord with me. It was as though a door had swung open and a possibility presented itself that I hadn't even considered until she invited me to do so. Now, perhaps this sounds surprising, but it's not uncommon for people in various religious traditions to speak, to seek spiritual renewal in the desert in wilderness places, in dry, sometimes forbidding places. 
In his study of the way that environment creates religious experience, the author William Johnston observed that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all religions that had their birthplaces in the desert. The people of Israel wandered for over 40 years in the desert, moving from their bondage in Egypt towards the promised land. It is said that the journey took that long because this was the time they needed to burn the slavery out of their bones. The spare landscapes of the desert, it is said, can weaken the world's grip on our senses. Slowly, we regain our bearings. Notice small but telling signs of God's presence. Learn what is essential and what is not. The Jesus movement began in the Judean desert near Jerusalem. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who essentially introduced him to the world, brought his ministry out into the desert. Now, he could have stood at a street corner somewhere in Jerusalem and announced the coming of Jesus, but he chose not to do that. He invited people to come away from more inhabited places out to deserted places so that they could focus on the coming of this man and his message. 400 years after the death of Jesus, there was a significant spirit, time of spiritual renewal which was deeply connected to the deserts of Egypt and Palestine. And by that time, Christianity had become more or less the official religion of the Roman Empire. But that status of official religion was a turnoff to many. Many people felt that Christianity had lost its robust sense of uniqueness. And so what did they do? They went out to the desert to, speak, to seek spiritual renewal. Now, many of them were men, but not all. And many of these so-called desert fathers and mothers moved out into the desert so they could deepen their sense of communion with the transcendent. They often shared writings with one another and brief sayings. Fortunately, many of them have been collected uh, under the titles of the wisdom of the desert fathers and mothers. But all of that developed because of their time in the desert. Today, there are retreat centers in desert regions all across the world. There's a famous monastery in New Mexico, Christ in the Spirit in the Desert Monastery that attracts people from all over the world, pilgrims to stay there, and again, deepen their sense of connection with the Spirit of God. I stayed at a spiritual retreat center in the Sonoran Desert, which stretches from the middle of Arizona all the way into Mexico and west into Baja, California. And that center is called Spirit in the Desert. And although this wonderful place is located in a mostly residential neighborhood, it's still located in the desert, and it is visited from time to time by rattlesnakes, scorpions, and javelinas, which were described to me as small pigs having a rather unique smell somewhere between the smell of a skunk and the odor of burning rubber. It's a uh, fascinating place. One day while I was gathering with a group of people on retreat there, I happened to be sitting with my back to a very large window, and I noticed the speaker looking past me as if he was noticing something right behind me. And when I turned around, together, all of us in the room saw this most magnificent bobcat strolling along the pathway of the retreat center, moving towards an outside wall where it promptly scratched its back for a while and then moved on. 
These encounters with wildlife are reminders that desert areas can be dangerous areas. And maybe it's just that sense of the desert as a daunting, wild place, a place of extremes with boiling hot temperatures during the day, freezing temperatures at night, an untamed, undomesticated place that attracts us, questions us, humbles us. Not just because of the creatures, of course, but because of the terrain and the remoteness. One day, I was taking a hike during my experience in February through Golden Canyon and the Amargosa Range in Death Valley. I was not alone. I was with a small group of people, but for a short time, I became separated from them because I was lingering way behind. This particular section of Golden Valley was used as a setting in the first Star Wars movie, so I wanted to drink up that experience. And when my hiking companions had disappeared, I could no longer hear the, uh, the sound of their conversation. I was utterly alone in this stillness. And it didn't take long for my imagination to have me thinking, what if I tripped over a rock and broke something and needed their help? And what if they had just kept on hiking? How long would I be out there? It's a beautiful experience to be alone in the wilderness, and it's also a somewhat daunting experience. In fact, during the week that I stayed in Death Valley, towards the very end of my February sabbatical experience, a hiker who was moving, making his way with a small group of friends up Telescope Mountain, which is an 11,000 uh, foot high peak, had indeed fallen and broken something, and his his companions had gone well ahead of him, so they completely lost contact with one another, and this man needed help. He had no water, no snacks, didn't have proper clothing. He had to be helicoptered out of the region. So one has to respect the desert terrain and the challenges that it presents. Edward Abbey was a beautiful writer and one of our most eloquent spokespersons about the desert, and he loved to explore the Southwest and the West. And whenever he would see a, a canyon moving out from a main trail, he would always take the opportunity to explore it. And in his book, Desert Solitary, he says, each time I look up one of the secretive little side canyons in the desert, I half expect to see a cottonwood tree rising over its tiny spring or a rainbow colored corona of blazing light pure spirit, pure being, about to speak my name. Now, oddly enough, there is something about being in the midst of these vast spaces that can still be very personal, very intimate. We can hear the breathing in our bodies. I could feel the, my own heartbeat when I was out in the desert in the midst of that great silence. Now, maybe we have similar feelings when we stand in the midst of an enormous cathedral, or listen to beautiful music, or look at great art, or when we're falling in love. These are all experiences when we are awakened to a sense of awe, carried out of ourselves, and how badly we need that. This is what some authors call getting the balcony view of life, right? Seeing these great expanses that cover the face of the earth, which prompt us to think, what is our place in all of that? What is our role? Since my return from the American Southwest back to the green of Greenwich, 
By the way, I think if you live in the Southwest, you really have to love the color tan. I've been wondering since my return about how the stories of the desert in all of these spiritual traditions can speak to us. How can we develop a powerful, personal, meaningful desert spirituality without ever having to visit Death Valley or Southern Arizona? One of the obstacles we face when we ask that question is that the image of the desert has taken on meanings, at least this is my perspective, that seem more inclined to the negative than the positive. These days we sometimes use the term food desert to describe regions and urban areas where it's almost impossible to get affordable, fresh food. During the pandemic, we became accustomed to seeing photographs of cities which looked like deserted spaces, wilderness spaces. In fact, photographic footage or video footage from drone shots over some of our cities actually showed how wild animals had begun to move back in because human beings were no longer present. We were all in quarantine. People often use the phrase, I've used it myself, inner desert to speak of emotional flatness, the absence of joy or zest in life, which again was often an experience that we felt uh, during the time of the global pandemic. Interesting thing is that during my first visit to the Southwest during the month of February, I found so much that was enthralling in those dry, open spaces. What the author Belden Lane calls the solace of fierce landscapes. Sounds like an oddity, uh, a paradox. How could we find solace in fierce landscapes? But there is something about being in wild territory that I think awakens our senses, makes us more alive to the environment around us, and there can be something actually healing about that. Out in the desert, I saw stars, starlit skies I had not seen since I was a child. Could see the Milky Way and the Pleiades with the naked eye. There is a fierce beauty in the desert. By the way, if you love thorns, it's the place to be. Seems like every living bush or shrub out of the desert has found a unique way to present itself to the world with a lot of thorns, but there are also amazing flowers. The desert does indeed blossom, as the prophet Isaiah said, and I was there just at the very beginning of that blossoming process, and so these little flowers were starting to come out in the most beautiful ways. So fragile, but so beautiful, and so resilient to survive in that harsh environment. There are so many beautiful, grotesque, colorful rock formations, like an endless array of of imagery just begging us to gaze at it. And for me, I would say the most precious gift from my time in that part of our country was the gift of moving in the midst of great silence. I was on a bike trip during the last four days of my time in February, and that was in Death Valley. And when cars were not passing on the roads that we used, and when I was alone during times, I was with a group, but for the most part, I was riding alone. I stopped over and over and over again, just so I could stand and listen to the desert wind whisper around me and just be held, surrounded by that vast silence. I think that there is in us right now a great hunger for silence. 
not just silence that's the absence of noise, but the presence of presence with a capital P. We're hungry for a sense of who we are without distraction, without embellishment from the world around us, without all of the beeping technology. And interestingly enough, in the passage from the Gospel according to Mark that I read as a prelude to this message, Jesus brought his disciples out to deserted places when he wanted them to be refreshed, which again, sounds odd. To bring people who are already tired out into a harsh environment, but this is where, of course, they could hear that, that movement. They could hear that voice within themselves. They could feel the movement of the spirit. And I think they've they found that refreshing. When I was on that four-day bike trip through Death Valley, I had ample time to be alone. And I often walked my bike for long stretches of time just so that I could enjoy that silence. Now this also guaranteed that I was always the last one back to our lodging at night, so I would find that when I would come in with my bike at the very end of the day, you know, the whole group would be out there clapping, applauding, here he comes at last, but you know, little did they know, I was out there walking, standing, breathing, soaking it all in. My experience is that in silence, we come face to face with ourselves. And that's not always an easy encounter. We may find that we're fidgety in the silence. We may find that there's too much silence and not enough presence in our lives. But if we allow ourselves to rest from time to time in the absence of noise and demands and technology, if we can see the silence not as a burden but as an opening into a relationship with this elusive spirit of God, we might discover that we're being introduced to our true selves, where we get to ask really good questions and sit with them for a while, like, what's most essential to us? What and who matters most to us? Is there an urgent voice calling us to respond to someone in need? And as Edward Abbey says, in the vast, dry, open spaces of the earth, it's as if someone is calling to us. Someone is calling our name, our true name. It's humbling to be in the desert. And again, strangely enough, it made me consider my place in the great scheme of things. I felt small, but not insignificant. That to me was the curious thing about being in the desert. In Death Valley, the specks of dust that are driven around by the winds there often wind up in one part of the valley called Mesquite Sands. This is a place of gigantic sand dunes. They're so large that some families bring their children there so they can go sledding down them. Now all together, those tiny particles form these magnificent sand dunes, perfect for sledding, perfect for exploration. And every speck of sand has its place. Every living creature on this planet has its place born out of the image of the Creator. And every single person matters. And together, we can create as humanity something that's beautiful, awe-inspiring. So I found grace and beauty in Death Valley. 
And I saw resilience, the way that every blade of grass, every shrub, every flower stands out in a way on its own against this vast backdrop and asserts itself in the world to say, I belong here and I will use all the resources at my disposal to survive and flourish. We don't have to go to the desert to create a desert spirituality. We can foster a relationship with silence anywhere because the spirit is everywhere. All we have to do is turn towards it to create the space where that spirit can speak to us well up within us like water can sometimes surprisingly and beautifully rise up in the desert. We can experience the soothing power of grace in that silence. We can hear our breathing. We can feel our heartbeat. We can sense the breath of the spirit flowing through our bodies. As Henry Nouwen wrote in his beautiful little book, The Way of the Heart, Desert Spirituality for Contemporary Ministry, our task is the opposite of distraction. Our task is to help one another concentrate on the real but often hidden event of God's active presence in our lives. Hence, the question that must guide all organizing activity in a congregation is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. Whether or not we ever visit the desert, we can shape our own unique desert spirituality to help us discover what matters most and what most needs doing to shape a world that is full of grace and peace and hope. Amen.